Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. On the listener's commentary, our goal is to provide down-to-earth Bible teaching that really is rooted in the language of everyday life and is connected to everyday life so that we can understand the Bible in its original context and then follow Jesus right in the midst of our everyday life. And in this section, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 13, 1 through 9. And it's an intriguing and fascinating little section that requires some thought on our part to really hear Jesus well and understand exactly what he's saying and then to wrestle with how that applies to our life. And so let's jump into the context here of Luke 13, 1 through 9. The heart of chapter 12 really revolved around the idea of being faithful servants and faithful followers of Jesus, people who seek first God's kingdom, and they're going to let God be the one who secures their life. And chapter 12 ended really with that imagery of faithful service and faithful servants, and that those faithful servants are ready and watching and prepared for their master's return. Or the day of visitation, which is the language from Micah chapter 7, verse 5, which Jesus quoted right from Micah 7 at the end of chapter 12. So that's where that section ended. And that last little section there of chapter 12 is really a bit of a lament and a warning with an implicit call to repent built into the imagery and the story at the end, because it's an echo of Micah chapter 7. Well, here... In Luke 13, 1 through 9, the call to repentance becomes explicit, and it grows out of some people who, Luke says, on that very occasion came and reported to Jesus on some current events, and that leads then to this discussion that we're going to look at here. And so here's how it is structured. Verses 1 through 5 is a discussion about, and then a call to repentance from, some current events in Jesus' day. And then the last little bit, verses 6 through 9, is a parable that really hangs judgment over the people of Jesus' day's heads and just leaves it there with an open-ended result. We don't know how it's going to end. Jesus just hangs this parable over their head with the idea of judgment uh, deeply uh, in it and leaves the end result open. What will happen? Let's jump in then and look at the details. Here's how this section begins. Now, on that very occasion, that very occasion of chapter 12, when Jesus is teaching to his disciples with a large crowd gathered around him, on that very occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifice. So this is some unknown event from their time, like unknown to us. It was known to them, and it was uh, some current event. Maybe it had just recently happened, and that's why they reported this to Jesus. It was new news, but it's unknown to us. We don't have any report of this, and yet um, we know this is totally in keeping with Pilate's character. And so what these people are reporting is that Pilate had killed some Galilean pilgrims. That's at least the way it seems. These were Jews from Galilee who were on their way to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifice, and for whatever reason, Pilate decided to execute them, to kill them. Um, and Pilate was the Roman governor of the, that region, of the region of Judea particularly, 
He was the Roman governor, and he was known to have acted this way. He was a brutal ruler. He had no qualms about killing people he perceived as threats or he perceived as a problem. So this is totally in keeping with Pilate's character, even though we don't know this particular event. And so they reported this news to Jesus. Did you hear about those Galileans that Pilate killed? And even though it's not recorded, presumably they were asking for Jesus in some way to comment on that which Jesus does. It's just that he doesn't comment on it the way that they would have expected him to comment on it. He doesn't you know, say the kinds of things that the standard belief system and the standard worldview of Jews of that day would have expected Jesus to say. Here's what Jesus says. Here's his comment. Verse 2, and Jesus responded and said to them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans just because they suffered this fate? So apparently those who reported this event to Jesus were asking for his comment on whether this happened to them on account of their sins. Apparently they were assuming a common view then and often now that personal tragedy is a punishment for wrongdoing. At least that's the way Jesus takes it, and that's the kind of thing Jesus responds to. So he doesn't just respond to the news event. He responds to this assumption that he sees underlying it. Do you think these Galileans are worse sinners than others because they suffer this fate? This tragedy happened to them because these were such bad people, such bad Galileans. Now, before we go any further and hear the rest of Jesus' response, let's just put some things into the original context, the cultural context of the day. So, Who's Pilate? Well, Pilate was a, a Roman official, the, the Roman governor of uh, Judea, who brutally killed some Galileans. During this time period, there was a massive groundswell of Jewish nationalism throughout really this whole first half of the first century, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. There's just this massive rise of Jewish nationalism, uh, this groundswell of were the Jews, and those this, that led to an anti-Roman hostility. And so what you get is rebellions and revolts that kind of sporadically erupted all throughout this time period, all throughout these decades, because this mood of rebellion and revolt spurred on by Jewish nationalism just lay under the surface, and occasionally they would just erupt in some sort of little riot, some sort of revolt, some sort of uh, attack on the Romans, and those sorts of things were dealt with brutally by the Romans. Like the Romans controlled the populace and maintained, quote-unquote, the peace with a crushing military might. And Jesus, either through prophetic insight or through keen ability to read the signs of the times, like he talked about at the end of chapter 12, or most likely through both, knew exactly where all of this was heading. And many of his warnings of judgment that we see in Jesus' teaching were first and foremost focused on his original audience. And they, they were warnings of the wrath that was to come in the form of the Roman destruction. And that, that happened 40 years from Jesus' day in the year 70. And in fact, just in the preceding section, Jesus is sort of lamenting and warning him of these things by recalling that happening in the days of the prophets 600 years prior when the Babylonians destroyed them. That's what he's doing by quoting Micah chapter 7 in the preceding section. 
And so Jesus, seeing all that's going on in Israel and how their current approaches to foreign occupation and Jewish nationalism and how their approaches to God and God's word is really putting them on a collision course with Rome. And he takes this occasion when these guys come and mention these Galileans, he takes this occasion to warn them that they need to repent. That is, they need to change their ways. They need to change their their spirit and what they prioritize. They need to change their approach to the Romans. They need to change their approach to God. They especially need to change their approach to Jesus and recognize who he is and start listening to him. And so with all of that in mind, here's what Jesus goes on to say in verses 3 and following. He says, no, they're not worse. These Galileans who Pilate killed, no, I tell you, they're not worse because of that. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you think that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed were worse offenders than all other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so, no, those Galileans, they're not worse sinners than others because they suffer this fate. If you don't repent, if you don't change your ways, see what God is up to in the person of Jesus and get on board with him, guess what? It's going to happen to you too. And he uses another example, this 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. Once again, it's not an event we're familiar with, but presumably from the way Jesus says it, it was common news, a current event in their day. The Tower of Siloam would have been around, most likely, the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And what sounds like is that presumably there was maybe some construction work going on on this tower, and it fell and it caved in and it killed 18 people in doing so. And Jesus just takes that occasion to say, look, do you just think that that happened to them as a punishment from God because they were worse, worse sinners? And he's like, no, no, that that's not the case. In fact, he restates, repent or this kind of thing will happen to you. And he may even be per- perhaps alluding to city walls and buildings there in Jerusalem as being knocked down during the Roman siege of Jerusalem, which is what happened, right? And collapsing and killing people. This kind of response that Jesus is offering here in verses 3 through 5 um, really may have stirred up serious controversy among Jesus' contemporaries. I mean, Israel was going to be judged and condemned for her sins, not the Romans. I mean, that that just did not fit their worldview. It didn't fit what they believed. And Jesus saying this sort of thing is like, well, wait, that that no, that can't be. In fact, a comment on the book of Habakkuk, the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, that shows up in the Dead Sea Scrolls seems to capture the sentiment of the day. Here's the comment. The comment is, God will not destroy his people by the hands of the nations, the Gentiles. God will execute judgment on the nations by the hand of his elect. That seems to be the sentiment of the day, and Jesus is challenging that directly here. No, no, that's not really the case. If you guys don't repent, you Jews don't change your actions, change your approach to things. Um, If you stay on the path you're on, guess what? Judgment is coming on you. And so with that warning in mind and that call to repentance hanging in the air, Jesus then tells a parable, uh, an illustration that communicates the threat of judgment on Israel and a call to repent. Here's the parable, verse 6. And he began telling this parable. 
a man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he didn't find any. Now, this parable uh, works like this. At the everyday level, vineyards were everywhere. People knew about vineyards. They knew about grapevines. They knew how vineyards work, grapevines work. They knew what it took to grow them. And this was just a staple part of their culture. So vineyards were everywhere. People knew how they worked. Um, they knew what happened to grapevines that weren't producing grapes. People knew that, that vineyard owners sometimes planted fig trees in vineyards, as in the case of this parable. And once again, they knew what happened if a fig tree produce no figs. In fact, interestingly enough, Micah 7, the chapter that Jesus quoted right in the last paragraph of chapter 12, just before these words here, Micah chapter 7 refers to a vineyard with no clusters of grapes and no figs to eat. And so in the, the context of Micah 7, um, you have a vineyard with a fig tree in it, and the vineyard isn't producing grapes, the fig tree in it's not producing figs. That's the context, all right? Now, at the imagery level then, that's the everyday level, vineyards and fig trees. At the imagery level, vineyards and fig trees were often used to represent Israel in the Bible. Uh, the most well-known one is probably Isaiah chapter 5, where God describes Israel as his vineyard. But it's a vineyard that only produces bad grapes. Um, and the fig tree throughout the Old Testament was uh, used as a metaphor, oftentimes for Jerusalem and for Judah. So Jesus' parable here is a very pointed parable, and it's very familiar. Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, is like a fruitless fig tree. Recall Jesus cursing a fig tree. We're going to see that event here in Luke before too long, that Jesus curses a fig tree, and that cursing was actually aimed right at the temple establishment itself. And so this is a very pointed little parable that Jesus is offering about a fruitless fig tree that's aimed at Jerusalem and at Judah and their fruitlessness. And so the parable continues in verse 7 like this, and he said to the vineyard keeper, and so this man who had a vineyard uh, says to the vineyard keeper, to his supervisor, look, for three years I have kept coming and looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? But he, being the vineyard keeper, answered and said to him, the owner of the vineyard, sir, leave it alone for this year too until I dig around it, put in some fertilizer, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, we'll cut it down. And so perhaps this fig tree maybe was fruitful in the past. Who knows? But for the last three years, the owner of the vineyard has come, checked his fig tree, and there's nothing. There's no fruit. And so that landowner, the vineyard owner, is ready to chop it down. He's like, this tree is just wasting space. It's using up the soil for nothing good. Let's just chop it down and make space for something else. But the supervisor of the vineyard says, let's give it one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll put some manure, some fertilizer manure around it. And let's see what happens. And this is actually um, unusual action on the supervisor's part. Fig trees don't normally need this kind of attention. Like they grow pretty readily in Jerusalem. They don't need this kind of attention. They don't usually get this kind of attention. In fact, 
Kenneth Bailey sees a little bit of insult humor in this. This fig tree doesn't get pruned and watered, basic stuff that a fig tree would get. No, what, what it needs and what it gets is a bunch of manure spread on it. And so that's what happens to the fig tree in the, in the parable. It, it's going to get one more chance to try to produce figs. It's going to get a bunch of manure spread around it, and it'll get one more chance. And the story is left unfinished because it's up to the people. The people in the crowd around Jesus, it's up to them how they respond. Um, and Jesus is really, in a lot of ways, like the supervisor in the parable. He's appealing to Jerusalem. He's appealing to the Jews. Repent. Bear fruit. He's digging. He's fertilizing. He's calling. He's hoping. And what will happen? Will they listen? Will they repent? Will they change their ways? Or will they stay on this path that's leading them to a collision course with Rome and God's judgment on them for, for their real, really ultimately, their rejection of the Messiah in the person of Jesus and rejection of the day of God's visitation in the person of Jesus? What will happen? But so far, just like Jerusalem of old and Micah's day and the prophet's day, right? Jerusalem of old in the Old Testament, just like Jerusalem of old, they have this false sense of security. Just like they ignored and attacked the prophets of old, they're doing the same thing to Jesus, and time is running short. And yet, and yet we see in the parable the, the urgent but merciful appeal of the supervisor to give the tree one more chance. And I'm struck by that note of mercy. And thus, the mercy and compassion, really, that is the context then, for Jesus' call to repent. Jesus' call to repent is not motivated by anger. It's not motivated by mean-spiritedness. It's mercy. It's kindness. He sees everything that's going on. He sees uh, what's going to happen to Jerusalem. He knows that they're on a collision collision course with Rome. He knows that that ultimately will be actually God's judgment on the nation for their unfruitfulness and their unfaithfulness. And in his mercy and in his kindness, he's calling them to repent. In fact, uh, much like Paul in Romans says, it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. And I'm also struck by the truth that repentance produces fruit. Um, fruit is what this tree needs in the parable, right? And Jesus is calling his his contemporaries to repent. And that repentance will bear fruit. And that fruit will look like walking in the way of Jesus. So the question is, will they repent or not? And that question still hangs over us today. And even over, notice, this is Jews. These are people who knew the scriptures. And that question still at times hangs over God's people even today. Are we really walking in repentance? Are we walking in the ways of Jesus and bearing his fruit? Uh, God will bring judgment at some point. Uh, God is a just judge, and yet, and yet there is still time to repent, and there is still time to bear fruit. Will we, as God's people, walk in the way of Jesus and live in repentance?